Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. I'm Caroline Modaresi Tirani. This is American Metamorphosis. Imagine for a moment you're in the middle of a clamoring New York City street. But not that New York City. Not today's New York, filled with skyscrapers and Central Park, with Broadway theatres and botanical gardens. Instead, imagine you're in New York City in 1865, just after the Civil War. The cobblestone streets throng with foot traffic, marching hurriedly to the drum of chaos and purpose. The roads are the lifeblood of an ever-growing industrial city, experiencing a population explosion The 19th century saw a huge influx of European immigrants, Irish, Italian, German. Many came with different languages and skill sets. And much like the New York we know today, they approached this city with hope. Hope to establish new lives, hope to explore new opportunities, and hope to build new worlds, just as long as they could survive the streets. Wait, how much manure are we talking about, John? Well, there were 12,000 horses just for the omnibus stagecoaches and streetcars, and they could each put out 30 to 50 pounds of manure a day. So one of the curious little side lights to all of this is there was a little industry devoted. Men ran around with carts scooping up the manure, and they sold it as fertilizer. That's John Morris. He's a reporter and pretty much wrote the book on New York City's transportation system. I mean, that's that's New York City in a nutshell, though. It is. Literally turning shit into, you know, gold. I mean... It, it really is a metaphor for the entrepreneurialism of the city. John's book is called Subway, The Curiosity, Secrets and Unofficial History of the New York Transit System. It tells the tales of political intrigue, of democratic infighting, and of, well, a lot of shit. Well, um, the streets were really in perpetual gridlock. Um, If you go back before the 1870s, um, the only forms of public transportation were uh, what were called omnibuses, which were essentially urban stagecoaches, horse-drawn. And there were also uh, horse-drawn streetcars. Um, and there were so many of them, they, they were basically bumper to bumper on big thoroughfares like Broadway. But gridlock and congestion wasn't simply a matter for traffic. For New York City politicians, gridlock was the party line. Tammany Hall was, <laughs> has become shorthand for the Democratic Party in New York City. So it was a very, very successful political machine and also enormously corrupt. Tammany Hall was founded in the late 18th century and remained a powerful and corrupt democratic club through the 1930s. Much of their influence derived from that influx of European immigrant workers. They were loyal to Tammany and Tammany to them 
no matter the amount of the proverbial piling up. So what sort of role did it have in the conception or the inception of the New York City subway? An obstructionist role. (laughs) Uh, Tammany Hall first blocked uh, plans for the elevated lines and then later for the subway. Um, And part of this was Boss Tweed, who was the dominant figure um, in Tammany Hall from the late 1850s till the early 1870s when he was jailed um, for stealing tens of millions of dollars. He had interests in some of the streetcar companies, so he didn't want competition. The city was reaching its boiling point from its politics to its population, until one day in 1888, instead of boiling over, it froze. Yeah, it was, it was a remarkable storm. Uh, it was up to you know more than four feet of, of snow, and it just brought the city to a complete halt. The great blizzard of 1888 took out entire power lines and railroads across the East Coast. It shut people in their homes for days on end, and cost the city $20 million in property loss. That's nearly $700 million in today's terms. But it was also remarkable for another reason. The storm gave some impetus um, to, to sort of help renew focus on the need to have some sort of form of transportation that wasn't vulnerable to weather like, like the blizzard. It was the city's then mayor, Abram Stevens Hewitt, who put forward a plan for an underground subway system that theoretically would ensure that no natural disaster would ever grind the city to a halt again. Hewitt proposed a public-private partnership that would fund the construction and operation of an underground system, a kind of partnership the city had never seen before. He envisioned electric trains that would travel an unimaginable 45 miles per hour from City Hall up to what is now Grand Central Station, turn west and travel up Broadway to 145th Street. The mayor wanted to do more than just reduce congestion. He wanted to solidify New York City's place as the leading business center in the United States. Also in his sights were rival cities like London and Paris, both of which were far ahead of the US in construction of their own underground railway systems. But first, there was a bit more gridlock to Hewitt's plan. There were a couple of false starts. Um, his, his idea of the city chipping in some money didn't didn't really fly in 1888, and mayors only served for two years, and he wasn't re-elected. From political barriers to blizzards, lost elections to congested streets, the path to build a New York City subway was far from clear and even further from consensus. We'll hear more from author John Morris later in the episode. We have an expression for monumental government projects like the New York City subway. We call them moonshots. Over the course of American history, there have been few examples, like Eisenhower and the interstate highway system, or Theodore Roosevelt and the Panama Canal, which prove that sustained interest and investment can occasionally overcome politics division and doubt, and that can lead to a transformative innovation, none perhaps greater than the namesake of the term moonshot itself. And we have now been planted on the moon. You're listening to American Metamorphosis, 
a new limited series podcast produced weekly in partnership between Atlantic Rethink, the branded content studio at The Atlantic, and Boston Consulting Group, a strategic partner to government and business leaders, helping them tackle their most important challenges. Over the past few weeks, we've been examining the very foundation of democracy, the peaceful transition of presidential power, and exploring how the obstacles and opportunities faced by new administrations have shaped modern American governance. We're looking at some of our most consequential problems. Our home, Earth, is in danger. And how, despite our often fractious government, America has rallied around issues that have tried to transcend politics and have, in some circumstances, transformed not just the country, but the world. 25 seconds. In today's episode, we go from shit-strewn New York City streets to twinkling stars as we examine how leaders calculate their moonshots, both literal and symbolic. Nine. Ignition sequence start. Six. We look at how innovation can not only bridge great distances, but can also be a catalyst for strengthening American industry and its workforce. And we'll consider how these challenges can be a launching pad for a generation and beyond. So what's your favorite thing about the Apollo program? You know, there's the the majesty of the program and it's incredible technologically and um, the work that people put into it and the risks that they took. And it was the the largest civilian technological program in U.S. history, extraordinarily expensive, over 4% of the federal budget. There are so many different measures that are so impressive when it comes to the Apollo program. But, But for me, it was... Um, the the important role it played in diplomacy in the 1960s. Dr. Teasel Muir Harmony knows space, or at least all the ways that we interact with it. She's held positions at the American Institute of Physics and the Adler Planetarium of Astronomy Museum. Today, Teasel is the curator of the Apollo spacecraft collection at the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum. And that soft power that she's describing underscores the geopolitical tensions that accompanied and provoked the space race itself. The U.S. was very behind in the space race for many, many years. Part of uh, what's important about this Cold War context is that with the threat of nuclear weapons and annihilation, both the United States and the Soviet Union were investing in other types of warfare. So psychological warfare was was really important and public diplomacy was seen as a, as essential to um, the U.S.'s position at the time. And this kind of trailing position, this list lasted for a number of years. So the Soviet Union kept on having first after first after first. The Soviet Union launched Sputnik in October of 1957. This is the first human-made satellite. Um, they followed up a month later with, with Sputnik 2, which had a dog on board, Laika, uh, so these were both huge blows to U.S. prestige and the sense that many Americans had that, that they were the, the leading country when it came to science and technology. Um, and then the United States tried to launch a satellite in December and it exploded on the launch pad. So yet another blow to U.S. prestige. The global power grab that came with the space race was made stark when in April 1961, just a few months into John F. Kennedy's presidency, 
the Soviet Union announced that Yuri Gagarin had become the first man to launch into space. I have already sent uh, congratulations to uh, Mr. Khrushchev, and uh, I uh, send uh, congratulations to uh, the man who was involved. When the Soviet Union announced that they had successfully launched a person in space, it shook the world. The Kennedy administration's priorities and their commitment to space exploration quickly shifted. It wasn't simply that the stakes had been raised. It was pressure to prove that communism couldn't and wouldn't prevail over American democracy. And while sending a man into space was one thing, sending a man to the moon was another. Part of the decision is to land humans on the moon as opposed to some other type of space spectacular was that it would require a brand new rocket to send humans to the moon and land them, not just orbit or do a flyby, but to land humans on the moon would require the United States to build a new rocket, but it would also require the Soviet Union to build a new rocket as well. And so um, with a different type of goal, there was a chance the Soviet Union could beat the United States. So if it was a lunar flyby, they perhaps they could beat us. But if it was a lunar landing goal, both nations had to build a new rocket, and that would level the playing field somewhat. Um, at least that's part of the, the mindset. That's part of what led to that particular decision. Time was of the essence. And just one month later, in May 1961, JFK pitched the Apollo program to a joint session of Congress, framing Apollo in terms that transcended party politics, pushing it into the orbit of the philosophical. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long-range exploration of space, and none will be so difficult or expensive to accomplish. Now it is time to take longer strides, time for a great new American enterprise, time for this nation to take a clearly leading role in space achievement, which in many ways may hold the key to our future on Earth. At the time, he was saying this is to win the hearts and minds of the world public. And in, in his words, you can see, he says, it's been made clear the impact of spaceflight on the minds of men everywhere who are attempting to make a determination of which road they should take. And that's really a clear Cold War framing. That's, um, that's about soft power and public diplomacy and the importance of impact of spaceflight on um, people around the world who are trying to determine whether or not they, they're going to pursue communism or capitalism. Before Kennedy proposed Project Apollo, the United States only had a total of about 15 minutes of human spaceflight experience. So it had to develop the rockets and the spacecraft and um, the computers and um, and then it had to coordinate this huge workforce and these contractors and subcontractors. To Teasel's point, the magnitude of scientific innovation required to not simply catch up, but also to exceed global expectations, was perhaps only rivaled by the magnitude of the workforce itself. Hundreds of thousands of people worked on the Apollo program. And um, a huge percentage of those people were working in private industry, so contractors and subcontractors. Um, so it was also seen as an important jobs program. Uh, so by the mid-1960s, that was 400,000 people. Over 90% of that workforce were subcontractors and um, contractors. And Webb was really essential for 
figuring out how to um, run this, this massive system. Who was James Webb? What was his role in the development of the Apollo program and beyond? So James Webb was the NASA administrator, uh, starting with the Kennedy administration uh, and, and going through the Johnson administration. He had a long history in government. He was sort of an expert when it came to management, um, but he didn't actually have a background in aerospace or engineering, um, but he brought his his management skills to NASA, which was really important because this the scale of this program was was unprecedented. Kennedy's moonshot finally had its foundation, political support, resources, and a massive, brilliant workforce. It was perhaps this very foundation that lived on when momentum shifted into shock. Just two years into his presidency, on November 22, 1963, President John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, Texas. The world grieves. The man who became 35th president less than three years ago is dead. The transition from Kennedy to Vice President Johnson was necessarily swift. Shock and grief were coupled with tension and turmoil. And though the two men couldn't have had more different political styles, Johnson, perhaps more than any other president, understood the power that the Apollo program had both here at home and abroad. Johnson made it clear that this was part of the Kennedy legacy. And so, and once he did that, it was it was going to be next to impossible um, to really uh, to really cut that budget or to change that direction. That budget has remained intact and with bipartisan support for decades. And Kennedy's moonshot left a lasting imprint, not just on science and innovation, but on academia and private industries too. It was a huge national investment, and it is important to recognize that a lot of the the dollars went to private industry and and um, helped create this this infrastructure and um, grew some of some American industries, especially when it came to things like computing, was really important for the future of computing within the United States. The not yet imaginable feats that Kennedy and Johnson saw with the moon landing set a precedent for how and where the United States would continue to lead in innovation elsewhere. When he took over the reins of the presidency, he, he continued to believe that spaceflight was essential for the country. He called it a, the launch pad of the great society. He, he thought that um, whatever country led in space would lead the world. That's one small step for man. One Today, the United States is in a different kind of race with an opportunity for an entirely different kind of moonshot, an AI-enabled government. Senator, I think the, the core question you're asking about AI transparency is a really important one that people are just starting to very seriously study, and that's ramping up a lot. An investment in artificial intelligence may not seem to be as immediate or urgent as vaccine rollouts or economic stimulus bills. But experts argue that a robust AI ecosystem is what's needed to propel the country forward, and that we have a window right now to act. 
One of those experts is Boston Consulting Group's Steve Mills. He's a leader in machine learning and artificial intelligence and is a member of the firm's Center for Digital Government. So you'd argue that this is something President Biden should be doing within his first 100 days? As part of his broad set of objectives he's laid out, absolutely. I think it needs to be something that we prioritize. He's got a lot on his plate. How do you then argue that AI-enabled government needs to rise to the top of his to-do list? If you look at the government's strategy that, that he put out, I believe it was the second day in office, data and analytics and AI are prominently featured in there. So there's a recognition that while, yes, this will help government writ large, and it's a, it's a transition we need to make, in the near term, it's also extremely important to just help with the pandemic response. Well, and, and I would even go a step further and just say, if you think about you know racial justice goals, climate goals, AI can assist with all of this. And according to Steve, just like the space race, the United States is once again behind. I mean, the, the sort of poster child for digital government is actually Estonia. So that's sort of the, the place we would tend to hold up as, as one of the best. In what ways has AI strengthened the Estonian government? I think the big focus in Estonia has been you know, strengthening the citizen experience. So can we create a more seamless interaction between government and citizen where you know, we're not needing to have 80 different websites in order to even interact with the government. So it's sort of that, that idea of a single entry point. And then once you have that, it's much easier to lay digital services on top of that to have a single digital citizen identity. The US is definitely you know, making strides and, and taking steps, but I think there's still a long way to go as we'd all, all tend to agree to, you know, that, that there's still work to be done for sure. Pursuing artificial intelligence across government might not strike the same notes of inspiration as, say, the moon landing. But if done right, Steve says that these changes would not just spur innovation and efficiency across the public and private sectors, but artificial intelligence could help remove the obstacles of bureaucracy and meet the most vulnerable populations right where they're at and right when they need help. If you think about it today, you lose your job, you have to go apply for unemployment, you go to a different place to apply for SNAP, a different place for Medicaid. You know, that becomes this single entry point where you don't go and say, I want to apply for unemployment. You say, I lost my job. And you fill out one bit of information and you're just enrolled in the services that it makes sense for you to be enrolled in and you qualify for. And then even sort of taking that a step further, you can start to use this rich information you have on all your citizens to actually start to predict the next contact channel. So like it, it, just as sort of an example, you know, imagine you get injured, you file for a, a Medicaid claim that can trigger a whole cascade of activities to say, now we should also automatically start, you know, enrolling them in disability programs. Let's not wait for them to come ask for it. Let's be very proactive we can really fundamentally transform what it's like for people to interact with government. Similar to the Apollo program, an endeavor like this requires apolitical buy-in, long-term planning, and a large-scale, highly skilled workforce. But unlike NASA, there is no single central agency who owns this specific mission. We need to move reasonably quickly here, and it's going to take years to set up a new agency. Now, the 
the um, National AI Initiative Office was just set up in the White House Office of Science, Technology and Policy, which will have this role of coordination across government. What are the workforce challenges for the U.S. government in realizing an AI-enabled government? Yeah, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, for all of this, you need the technical talent in order to build it, to sustain it, to carry it forward. Um, and I think, you know, we we have really sort of consistently seen underinvestment in technical talent. You know, the reality is the government can't hire their way out of this. And so having a large scale government upskilling program will be really important. And the, there, there seems to be this tendency, as I talk to a lot of, of folks in the government, is, you know, we need to hire 500 PhDs. And it's actually not the case. You actually don't need, you know, a huge army of machine learning researchers and, and AI researchers. What do you need? You know, I, I would argue that, that the general worker, you know, needs to understand the basics of data the basics of analytics, sort of how algorithms make decisions, not under the, the hood, the weeds of the mathematics or anything like that, or, or the details of the software code, but just conceptually, how do they work? We can't think we're going to turn everybody into a coder. That's unrealistic. But there are certain people that have that aptitude, and we should put in place a way for us to, to, to create that, to put them through an academy in which they can upskill to that, to that extent. What you need sort of, I would say, two things. One is a set of folks that are able to take sort of the AI building blocks out there, you know, the software packages that are being created by researchers and tie them together into AI products. We just need to recognize it's hard. It's going to take a long time. It's a people problem. It's a change management problem, but we can get there. Imagine for a moment you're in New York City. It's 1904 four years after subway construction began, and you walk down a set of stairs near the Brooklyn Bridge. The doors glide open, and you step into an underground subway headed towards Times Square or beyond. Here's subway historian and reporter John Morris again. It was a huge cause for celebration. Um, there was all sorts of florid rhetoric in the newspapers about what a great, um, what a great achievement this was, and it was. There was a similar celebration the day it opened. Um, there were noisemakers, fireworks. The police had to be called out at 145th Street, which was then the the, the end of the line, to to push back a crowd that wanted to get in and see it. Just like the workforce built around Kennedy's moonshot or the workforce needed to fully realize an AI-enabled government. It's we, the people, who are at the very core of our own ability to innovate. How did the New York City subway system actually end up getting greenlit? The, the chief contractor was John McDonald, who was an Irish immigrant. I'm sure, you know, it was a huge public works project, so I'm sure, I'm sure it benefited lots of Tammany people. Remember, Tammany Hall's influence still derived from that influx of European immigrant workers, and the club quickly realised that it could shift from its role as obstructionist to opportunist. Well, yeah, there's a little irony of that. Of course, it, it was an enormous works programme. Um, <clears throat> at its peak, there were ten to 12,000 men working um, mostly immigrants, um, lots of Irish and Italians, a lot of African-Americans. It was a complete 
you know, mix of America at that time, which was, you know, because it was a peak time of immigration. Um, so it was, you know, it, it employed thousands and thousands of people. And so on October 27th, 1904, 16 years after that great blizzard of 1888, the New York City subway system was first opened up to the public. And it was just as Hewitt proposed. Trains that traveled at those unimaginable speeds that went from City Hall to Grand Central Station, up Broadway to 145th Street. They built the whole original line in four and a half years. They did it on budget, on schedule, which is astonishing given how many, you know, how much manual labor there was. We've just gone through a rough presidential transition from Trump to Biden. But like moonshots in the past, this is a moment that could present a real bipartisan opportunity, a mission that could propel our government into the future. Here's BCG's Steve Mills again. There's an opportunity to set a clear message and a clear set of priorities. And so I think if as the administration comes in and as new leaders enter agencies, to make clear that this is part of their agenda, that they believe that it's important to enable all these other outcomes. And that as we think about the strategy for these agencies going forward, AI and data needs to be part of it because it will enable these other goals. It needs to be linked back to what is the bigger goal we're trying to achieve and even going down this path. But I think if we can do that, it's sort of the moment in which we can really catalyze and, and start to embrace this. And I think it will have long-term ramifications for the nation. In his last speech on spaceflight, President JFK told a story he'd grown up hearing. Here's Dr. Teasel Muir Harmony. This is a short story from an Irish writer about when he was a kid, they were out in a field and when they'd get to a wall, what they did is they threw their hat over the wall because then they'd have to figure out a way to get over it. This gives promise of someday providing a means for even more exciting and ambitious exploration of space, perhaps beyond the moon, perhaps to the very end of the solar system itself. It's the people that come to define our moonshots. It's the people who throw their hats across the wall, who build, who dream, and who push to understand worlds that we haven't yet seen and worlds that we can't yet imagine. He compared that to the Apollo program and sending humans to the moon and that um, the important part was the commitment to lunar exploration and that we would figure out a way, even though we didn't know how to get there uh, when we made that commitment. I'm Caroline Modaresi-Tarani. You've been listening to American Metamorphosis. Join me next week as we go from examining the innovation America is known for to the injustices it's defined by. 